0: Well, we need to move uh, right into the message. Uh, We, uh, of course, this morning uh, continue a relatively new sermon series on the Psalms of the Degrees entitled, uh, Celebrating Triumph Over Trouble Through Trust in God. And uh, today we come to the second of the Psalms of the Degrees, Psalm 121 where the focus is on trusting in God's help when in trouble. Uh, Let's begin with uh, the very brief review uh, that you see in your notes. And I'll just stay right to the uh, text, but I think it's important uh, for us to lay this uh, foundation. Uh, The Psalms of the degrees, a a reminder, are 15 Psalms, 120 through 134. The position I have taken, and you'll have to go to the previous messages to hear my reasoning, is that these 15 Psalms were compiled by King Hezekiah to commemorate when God healed him from a terminal disease, added 15 years to his life, delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrians and performed the miracle of the degrees as a sign he would fulfill What he had promised. And you'll see all of that in 2 Kings 20, verses 1 through 11, and Isaiah 38, verses 1 through 8. And several weeks ago, we looked very, very carefully at uh, both of those passages. In Isaiah 38, verse 20, As Isaiah is praising God for what he had done. He proclaims the Lord will surely save me. So we will play my songs. And we believe that's referring to the Psalms of the degrees. We will play my songs uh, on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. Uh, We have seen that Hezekiah arranged these uh, songs in five groups of three psalms, with the first psalm in each trio speaking of trouble, the second psalm, trust, the third psalm, triumph for God's deliverance. Now last Sunday, uh, we examined Psalm 120, and since that was the first psalm in the first trio, it's going to speak of trouble. And I entitled that message, When Trouble Invades Your Life. And of course, the trouble Hezekiah was referring to in Psalm 120 is the trouble of the Assyrian invasion of Judah. And we saw last week that the psalm focuses on the emotions that trouble evokes in our lives as we grapple with trouble in our human frailty. We saw that you feel the anxiety of impending doom. You struggle with feeling demoralized by the lies of the enemy. And then you feel stressed out as you long for a peace which cannot be found. Now let me just pause right here for a moment before we go any further. If you were here last Sunday, last Sunday's message was not a feel-good message. Uh, It identified and describe the intense pain and perplexity we experience when we encounter life's troubles. At the end of the message, we literally left God's child, specifically King Hezekiah, trapped in very, very uh, precarious and ominous external circumstances while internally struggling with the gnawing anxiety of what does the future hold. An overwhelming sense of hopelessness and the unbearable stress and depression of finding no peace to the point where death appeared to be the only escape. Thank God last Sunday's message was not the end of the story. Thank you for coming back. Uh, Today in Psalm 121, we will discover that no matter how bad the situation may be, you are never without hope when you place your trust and confidence in God. So look now, and this is very important information for us to uh, nail down that will make Psalm 121 really come alive for us. Look at the historical background to Psalm 121. Psalm 121 shifts from the trouble created by the Assyrian invasion that we looked at last week in Psalm 120 to the trust Hezekiah placed in God. Humanly speaking, as we saw last week, the situation was as desperate as could be imagined. The dreaded Assyrian army had literally overthrown every city in the nation of Judah with Jerusalem being the last hold out. Hezekiah, we saw in a moment of weakness, tried to appease the Assyrians by giving them all the silver, all the gold from the temple and king's treasuries, but he quickly learned you cannot appease evil. You have to overcome it. You have to overcome it. The Assyrians first engaged in a war of words directed as Hezekiah to cause Jerusalem to surrender through fear and intimidation. And that, those are those lying words, deceptive words that he refers to in Psalm 120. Now this is where we pick up all new material, right here. The Assyrian king then sent a letter to Hezekiah, which was a direct attack on God himself. Hezekiah takes the letter into the temple, spreads it before the Lord, and puts his trust in God alone to deliver. Isaiah the prophet then sent a message to Hezekiah that God had heard his prayer and will deliver Jerusalem. Now, this is what I'd like to do at this point. I want to read for you from 2 Kings 19. I want to first read Sennacherib's letter to Hezekiah, Sennacherib being the king of Assyria, and then we want to read Hezekiah's prayer to God, and then God's message to Hezekiah in response to his prayer. Now I'm going to be reading all of this uh, from the New Living Translation. I thought a a more contemporary translation would just be, uh, uh, make it easier to uh, understand. And so the first thing we want to look at is the letter that the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, sends to Hezekiah to try to cause him to uh, capitulate and to surrender the city of Jerusalem to him. This is what we read in verses 10 through 13 of 2 Kings uh, 19. This message is for King Hezekiah of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, Deceive you with promises that Jerusalem will not be captured by the king of Assyria. You know perfectly well what the kings of Assyria have done wherever they have gone. They have completely destroyed everyone who stood in their way. And that was true. Why should you be any different? Have the gods of other nations rescued them? Such nations as Goshen, Haran, Rishapha? And the people of Eden who were in Telazar, my predecessors destroyed them all. What happened to the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad? What happened to the kings of Sharaphim, Hena, and Iphah? So that's the letter. It says you're, you're foolish in putting your trust in the promises of your God. Because our history demonstrates that no one has been able to withstand the might of the Assyrian Empire, the gods of none of the nations. So now, Hezekiah takes that letter that was given to him, and keep in mind, it would have been what? A scroll. It would have been a scroll that would have been given him that uh, brought this message from Sennacherib. So what Hezekiah does? He goes into the temple. He opens the scroll. He just spreads it out before the Lord, falls on his face, and this is his prayer to God, beginning at uh, verse uh, 14 and going through verse 19. It says, After Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. O Lord, God of Israel, you are enthroned between or above the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created, made the heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations. And they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course, the Assyrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all. Only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. And what a prayer right here. Now, O Lord, our God, rescue us from His power. Then, or in order that... All the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Quite a prayer. After Hezekiah prayed to God, God gives his message to Hezekiah uh, through the prophet Isaiah. And this is what you do not want to miss. Very simple, but don't miss it. This all began with Sennacherib speaking to Hezekiah concerning the Lord. Then Hezekiah spoke to the Lord concerning Sennacherib. Now the Lord speaks to Hezekiah concerning Zeri- Sennacherib. And here's the point. God always has the final word. Period. In all the affairs of men. Sennacherib may exalt himself as the ruler of the world, he may boast of his military might, which, yes, has terrified the nations of the world, but it is God alone who will close the book on what Sennacherib really is, and this is what God said. Here it is, beginning at verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because... You have prayed to me. About Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. And I love this next uh, little bit. It says, she has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has taken her head behind you, the daughter... She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Do you understand the metaphor he's giving there? God portrays the city of Jerusalem like a a virgin maiden who Assyrian has come uh, to violate. And he says, God says, but I'll tell you something. This little innocent virgin who does not have the strength to stand against your military might, in the end, you're going to be going back to Assyria with your... Between your... You know what I'm saying. And she's going to be wagging her head at you. Sticking her tongue out. And deriding you. And scorning and scoffing you. Just a tremendous statement. And then verse 22. God is... It's like He's talking directly to Zennacherib. He says, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice? And haughtily lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel... Through your messengers you have reproached the Lord. And you have said with my many chariots I came up to the heights of the mountains. To the remotest parts of Lebanon. And I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses. And I entered its farthest lodging place, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters. And with the sole of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. In other words, he's referring to the Assyrians boast about their conquest. And then God responds in verse 25. Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. In other words, God's acknowledging I'm sovereign. There's nothing that you've done apart from my sovereign plan. I've simply used you as my instrument to bring chastisement and judgment on many, many nations. Now I have brought it to pass. That you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb. As grass on the housetop is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down. This is God speaking. to is And you're going out and you're coming in. And you're raging against me. Because you're raging against me and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. By the way, that was one of the most favorite pastimes of the Assyrians. When they would capture an enemy, they would have these long, huge hooks, like a fish hook. And they would literally put them through the nose or the jaws of their enemies and lead them like a, like a dog on a, on a lease. So God picks up on that. And he says, therefore, I'll put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. And then in verse 32, we read, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. And he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a seed's ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same He will return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, with that historical background, we go now to Psalm 121, which again, Hezekiah wrote to express the confidence and the trust he placed in the Lord during the Assyrian invasion. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 121. And follow as I read it. Psalm 121. And you'll see that this psalm is so much brighter than last week's psalm. Again, Psalm 120, the first of that trio, trouble. But here the focus is trust in God. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will, not, he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth. And forever. Now, two important observations before we go any further. Here's the first observation, extremely important. Really, I think it's probably the, the, the key to the entire Psalm. Six different times in Psalm 121, you see the same identical word in the Hebrew text. It's translated different ways in our English text. Let me give them to you. The Hebrew word is shamar. In the New American English version, which I just read from, uh, Shamar is translated three times in the Psalms by the word keeps. Verse 3, He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, He who keeps Israel will neither slumber or sleep. And verse 7, He will keep your uh, soul. And of course, Uh, And then in verse 5, it is translated keeper, which is the noun form of the word. The Lord is your keeper. In verse 7, it's translated protect. The Lord will protect you from all evil. In verse 8, it is translated guard. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in. All of those words are the same Hebrew word shamar. Now, here's what you need to see, and this is a beautiful, beautiful truth. The word shamar in the Hebrew text literally means to place a hedge around something in order to keep it safe, to watch over it, to guard, protect, and preserve it. Folks, this is the an Old Testament equivalent to Romans eight twenty eight and twenty nine. You're familiar with that New Testament passage. It says what? All things work together for what? Good. Not that everything that happens is good. Trouble does come. We do suffer. But God has the ability to cause all things to work for our good. Even the bad things. Why? Verse 29 is the key. Because we've been predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that word predestined, prohorizo in the Greek text, has two fundamental meanings. I've shared this before from this pulpit. Let me emphasize it again. First, it means a predetermined outcome. In other words, when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, enters covenant with God, God predetermines that the outcome of their faith in Christ is that they will be made like Jesus. And so we begin that process at our conversion, and that process is not complete until we look upon Jesus' face and we see Him, right? Face to face. But the word also means to place a boundary around something. This is the word for which we get the word horizon. And so when you put all this together, what Romans 8, 28, and 29 is saying is that if you are a believer, I cannot think of any greater truth to share with you than this. If you are a believer, if you are a true child of God through faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, God says, I've hedged you about. I've put a boundary around you, and I'm giving you an ironclad absolute guarantee that I will never let anything, I will not let anything get through that hedge and touch your life unless I know I can ultimately cause it to work for your spiritual good and my greater glory. What a truth. What a truth. And that is exactly what Hezekiah, in essence, is praising God for here with this word Shamar. He's recognizing, he's he's recognized, hey, the ultimate security of Jerusalem and God's people, it's, it's not our military defenses. It's not the great wall that surrounds the city. It has nothing to do with all the preparations that we've made for this invasion. There were many preparations that were made that you see in 2 Kings 18. It was the fact that God had heads them about. He had heads them about to guard and protect them to ensure the accomplishment of his purposes through the nation of Judah, chief of which was to bring into the world through this little nation the Messiah. Second observation. Second observation, did you notice that the psalm actually seems to be a dialogue between two people? Did you notice, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then, verse 3, he will not allow your foot to sleep. It's like the writer speaks and then there's another person speaking to him to encourage him. Uh, What you have here is what you see in so many, many psalms. It is actually a dialogue that is going on inside the writer of the psalm himself. He is speaking, listen now, don't miss this. He is speaking God's truth to himself to strengthen and encourage his faith in God. And this brings us to a powerful application How do you overcome those anxious thoughts that we talked about last week when you encounter trouble? How do you overcome and dispel the demoralizing lies of the enemy that throws you into just a hopeless state? How do you climb out of the pit of depression? I'll tell you how. You stop listening to yourself, and you start speaking to yourself. You start speaking God's truth to yourself. The battlefield is ultimately where? The mind. What controls your thoughts controls you. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. When trouble comes, when trouble comes, you have a choice. Every one of us has a choice. You can focus on the trouble. You can focus on the size of the problem and I guarantee if you do it will only become bigger and bigger until you are literally crushed under the weight of it all. Or you can meditate in God's Word on the size of your God and His ability. Not only to bring you through the trouble but in the process to strengthen your relationship with Christ and to make you more like Him. So look now at the first point from Psalm 121, which you find at the top of the second page in your notes. When trouble invades your life, we learn from Hezekiah, place your trust in the Lord who made heaven and earth. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and and earth. Now, going back to the historical account in 2 Kings 19, look again how this correlates exactly with how Hezekiah prayed. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, Thou art the God, Thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, Thou hast made, what? Heaven and earth. The ground, listen now. The ground for Hezekiah's confidence that God would deliver him from the Assyrians was that his help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, we don't have long, but we need to meditate on that at least just for a moment. Now, this is not in your notes. It's not in your notes. But let me give you, and there there are many more that could be shared, but let me give you five presuppositions. We can draw from this truth that God made heaven and earth, which should control our world view. It should control the way we see the world. It should control the way we see trouble. It should make all the difference in the world. And here's the first one. First, God is absolute reality. You say, Andy, what do I mean by What do you mean by that? That he's absolute or ultimate reality. Let me make it very simple. Nothing existed before God. Nothing, nothing, nothing existed before God. And therefore, nothing exists outside of God which He did not create. And therefore, God is sovereign over all. Amen. Second presupposition, God is the only truly independent and self-sufficient being that exists. In contrast, since everything else was created by God, since everything else was created by God, everything outside of God is totally dependent upon God and stays in being only by God's will. Again, God is sovereign over all. So He's sovereign. He's the ultimate reality behind all things. He's the only independent, self-sufficient being in the universe. Everything else is totally dependent upon Him and only exists by His will, only continues to exist by His will and by His will alone. Third presupposition, God is constant. In other words, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot be improved. He is not becoming anything. He is who He is. Fourth, God is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty and everything he wills or does is consistent with who he is and what he has promised. And then five, God is the most important reality and most valuable person in the universe. He is more worthy of trust, allegiance, and adoration than all other realities including the entire universe put together. Now, to get this where the rubber meets the road, look at the next three questions in your notes. This drives it home in a very practical way. If my help, if this is really, really true, and it is, so if my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, is there any trouble too difficult He cannot overcome? Is there? No, of course not. Look at the second question. If my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, is there any enemy too powerful he cannot defeat? Of course not. And then third, if my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, is there any need too great he cannot meet? Of course not. And that's the point that Hezekiah is making. He suddenly, he suddenly realizes that my help is in the Creator, the one who made heaven and earth, the all-sovereign God. This Assyrian king is nothing in comparison to God. Now, he may be something in comparison to me, but in comparison to God, he's absolutely nothing, and God is ultimately in control, and therefore I'm going to put my trust in in him. Uh, Look at the second point. When trouble invades your life, Place your trust in the Lord who will keep you. This goes back to that word shamar, that he's hedged you about to watch over you, to guard you, to protect you. And look at those next three bullet points. The Lord will keep you from falling. The Lord will keep you from falling. That's what Hezekiah realizes. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber. Nor sleep. In other words, this God that's hedged you about, he never slumbers, he never sleeps, he's constantly watching over you to guard you, to protect you. And he will keep me, Hezekiah is saying, from falling to the Assyrians. He will keep me upright and give me the victory in this situation. I don't know how, I can't see it at this point, but I'm going to put my trust and my faith in him. Amen. I think of Jude, the book of Jude in the New Testament, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Look at the second bullet point. The Lord will guard you when the enemy attacks. The Lord will guard you when the enemy attacks. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The right hand is a soldier's sword hand. And what he's saying here is that God will protect you in the fight. When the fight comes, when the enemy assaults you with everything that he's got, God will be there. And he will protect you against and guard you against the enemy attacks. Daytime or nighttime. Because he never slumbers. He never sleeps. And then look at the third bullet point. The Lord will protect you from being spiritually harmed by evil. The Lord will protect you from being spiritually harmed by evil. Verses 7 and 8. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Now, folks, pause right here just a moment. This doesn't mean you're not going to be confronted with evil. This doesn't mean that Christians are immune from trouble, from trials, from pain, from suffering. It's not saying that. It's saying that God gives us this iron guarantee that we talked about in Romans 8, 28, and 29, in this word, shamar, that He won't let anything get through that hedge unless He knows, yes, it may be painful. Yes, it may be evil at first look, but He can use that ultimately for your good. He can use that to take you into a greater dependence upon Him. He can use that to give you a greater faith in Him. He can use that to develop a greater intimacy with Him as you learn to lean on Him. As all those crutches that you have trusted in are kicked out from underneath you and you're left alone with God and God alone in the face of the enemy. That's what He's saying here. And and all we need to do is look at our Savior He took the evil of the cross, an instrument of execution, an instrument of torture, of unspeakable pain, shame, reproach, and by the shedding of his blood on that cross, he transformed that evil instrument into what? A life giving source from which eternal life flows to all who put their trust in Jesus Christ. And what we see God did in Jesus' life, He will do in your life, He'll do in my life, He'll do in this church's life. But we must trust Him, we must put our faith in Him. If that does not happen, there's only one reason unbelief I'll give you one little example he delivered the children of Israel from Egypt did he intend to take that generation into the promised land did he of course he did why didn't they get there it wasn't because of God's unwillingness go to Hebrews 3 and 4 and it tells you very plainly they didn't enter because of their unbelief and because of their disobedience Because of their stinking whining about their trouble, about their stinking unbelief, not having confidence in God, not willing to place their trust in God. Instead of murmuring, instead they murmured against God, they complained against God, they murmured and complained about His leaders, everything that was happening. When trouble came, it was just another excuse for them to murmur, to complain, and to question God, to doubt God. So God is there as our Heavenly Father. He loves us. He's placed that head around us to watch over us, to guard us, to protect us. But He does desire us to honor Him by trusting Him. You know, again, this is Father's Day. Fathers, would not you agree with me? I can't think of anything. I cannot think of anything. I'm talking about in terms of being an earthly father that would more devastate me than one of my ten children coming to me and looking in my eyes and saying, Daddy, I don't think I can trust you anymore. Yet yeah, we do that every day with our Heavenly Father, with our unbelief and our disobedience, our murmuring, complaining, our critical spirit. And you need to realize, when you murmur, complain, and become critical about life circumstances, when you murmur and complain and become critical about others, whether it's your spouse, in your family, neighbors, coworkers, You're just murmuring, complaining, being critical toward God. Because He's sovereign. He's in control. He wants to use all of those circumstances, all of those people, no matter how difficult, no matter how odd, peculiar, He wants to use them to shape your life, to mold your life. And the first thing you have to do is bow and say, God, I surrender to you. God, I give you the freedom to arrange the circumstances in my life in right, the way that you deem best to accomplish your purposes. Lord, it's, it's handoff. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you as sovereign God. And so in every circumstance, in every relationship, my first response will be, although I may not understand, I may not understand what's, how you're going to work it all, I'm going to thank you. Thank you for this circumstance. Thank you for this person. Thank you for this. I put my trust in you. That you have hedged me about. You're watching over me even in this to guard me, to protect me and to cause it to work for my good and your greater glory. Uh, Two closing lessons and then we're done. And these are important ones. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to amplify on this uh, in other Psalms as we go forward. Two closing lessons. First one, very important. The prayer of faith makes a difference. Prayer changes things. God responds to our prayers. There are things that do not happen that would have happened if we would have prayed and trusted God. That's the reality. You see that all through the Bible. I mean, one of the most classic examples is what? Ezekiel 22. God said, I search for a man. I search for just a single man to stand in the gap so that I would not destroy the land. But sadly, he says what? I could not find one. And therefore, he said, my wrath has come against them. And there are many many other. I mean we even saw uh, uh, earlier in uh, with Hezekiah. You remember the very first message? We looked at the very beginning of Hezekiah's reign. He t- he took the throne at the age of 25. Israel the, the nation of Judah couldn't be in a worse situation. I mean they were just evil. They had turned their backs on God. Pro- the uh, prophet Micah, who's a contemporary of I- Isaiah, he prophesized You're done. God's going to bring in the Assyrians, and you're done. He's tired of your wickedness. He's tired of your sin. And we saw how Hezekiah humbled himself before the Lord. He repented. He orchestrated this national revival as he turned the people back to God and the scripture says, as clear as the Bible, it says, and the Lord, this is, I'm not, I'm not, this is literal language. And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune that he had intended to bring against Israel. And and this, you say, well, I thought God's sovereign. Here's the thing you need to recognize He's sovereign. He's always going to be true to His character. And because God's holy, he's going to punish sin. But because God is loving and merciful, when he sees repentance, when he sees humbling, his loving heart responds to that. And he stoops in humility to save and to change. So the prayer of faith makes a difference. 2 Kings nineteen twenty. We already read it. This is Isaiah the prophet speaking to Hezekiah, giving him God's message. Because... Notice that. Circle that. Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria. I've heard you, and then you heard what God committed to do. That he would defend this city. Sennacherib would never... His army would never shoot an arrow. Never put up a siege wall. And God would defend the city. And the Assyrian king would, go, would leave in defeat. Uh, look at the second lesson. And I love this one about prayer. The chief purpose in prayer. And maybe this is why we don't see more answers to prayer Because so many of our prayers, uh, it's just uh, an expression of self-gratification, of selfishness. It says "The the chief purpose in prayer is for God to be exalted in the answer. That is the chief purpose of prayer. That in the answer to the prayer, when people see that answer, they say, God did it. It puts God on display, where he's magnified and honored. And look at how Hezekiah prayed. It's amazing. He... He doesn't really whine about their situation. He doesn't beg, plead some reluctant God to come through for them. He says, and now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand. Why? In order that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone, O Lord, art God. Amen? And that's how God wants us to pray. He wants to see prayer as a tool, not just to execute God's will, but to put God on display in the answer as we surrender uh, to Him. So Psalm 120, the trouble of the Assyrian invasion. Psalm 121, trust. Trust in God. And then next week will be very, very exciting as we look at the triumph of deliverance. We're going to look at next week, okay, now that Hezekiah put his trust in God, what did God do? How did he deliver his people? And it's a wonderful, amazing, miraculous story of God's grace that did put him on display and exalt him before all the kingdoms of the world. Father, uh, instruct our hearts in your ways um, Uh, Lord, thank you uh, for your amazing love uh, for us. Thank you for that word, shamar, that you have hedged us about. You've walled us in to watch over us, to guard us, protect us. Father, forgive us for our utter, utter foolishness to often resist you and to want to get outside of that hedge, to get outside of your Umbrella of authority. Because when we do, we also get outside of the umbrella of your protection. And we suffer consequences. So Lord, open our eyes to see your love. Not only to see your love, your awesome power. That you're a sovereign God. The God who made heaven and earth. The God who merely spoke And the stars and the galaxies in this universe came into existence. Lord, you know where each person in this sanctuary is right now. In terms of their life, in terms of their walk with you. You know the trouble that they're encountering. We thank you that you are sovereign. We acknowledge there's no trouble that we're facing right now that you did not allow. And you did not allow ultimately for our spiritual good in your greater glory. And so, Lord, give us the grace to stop whining, to stop complaining, to bow in surrender before you and in repentance. And like Hezekiah, to put our trust in you. Trusting that you will cause whatever that trouble might be. To draw us closer to you. To take us deeper in our walk with you. And to demonstrate your glory. As you're put on display in and through our lives. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.